We've all heard the story, you know, of a small town boy or girl boarding a midnight train bound for anywhere and ending up in a big city. Let's say New York, let's say uh, LA, Chicago. And they think that they're expanding their world, but they end up with a set of people, you know, more like-minded than ever before, more like themselves. And ultimately they narrow their world. In reality, back home, you know, in their family, in their neighborhood, in the tradition that they left, there was enough variation, enough um, wildness and serendipity that they could have expanded themselves by sitting with the discomfort, sitting with the uncontrollable nature of where they left from in the first place. So that kind of sets up the essay I want to talk about today called Uncertain Modern Writers and the Institution of the Family by G.K. Chesterton. So this essay was very moving to me, um, and I think it'll be very moving to you as well. We live in a super curated world. We live in a world where we listen to music of our own choosing. We don't turn the radio on typically. We don't listen to you know, random stuff. We we hone in on exactly the sound that suits us. We listen to political opinions that cater to us. We, you know, go to big cities and we find friends who are like us or even even larger, you know, the even larger world of the digital city, right? Where we can find people throughout the world who are increasingly narrowly like us. And some people would even promote this as a good thing, right? So Balaji Srinivasan, his idea of the network state, that's exactly what this is. It's people with common values coming together um, and setting themselves apart from the rest of society as a society in themselves. The Greek idea of oikos is exactly the opposite, right? Home and hearth, the people around you, um, though they may not be like you in every single way. the fact of the matter is, you have a common humanity. Uh, you share a um, you share a place and a time together, and you know you you aren't as um, narrow on the particulars. You let people be different. You you let yourself be uncomfortable with people that are different from you, truly different from you, not different in superficial ways like a a gap advertisement, but like genuinely different. Um, that people hate Thanksgiving dinner for this reason, right? You're going to go sit down, you're going to argue with your uncle who's a Trump supporter, or you're going to argue with your uh, you know, aunt who's um, a rabid MSNBC listener. But the reality is, in all their uncontrollable, wild nature, you know, they represent something deep about reality that that's there for you to engage with to sit with to not retreat from and withdraw from and narrow yourself the other thing that's interesting too is the more people narrow their world the more they feel like they're expanding their world you know you you run away to new york you think you're going to this big city in reality you end up with a social circle that's narrower than ever and yet you think you've expanded your world you um listen to and read things that are only along the lines of what you already believe, you think you've expanded your knowledge. In reality, you've narrowed yourself even further. So Chesterton digs into the details of this um, this phenomenon in, in a really beautiful and impactful way. And 
I think it's gonna it's gonna really move you and, and change your behavior like it's changed mine. Because um, I'm no exception to this, right? I live in a very curated world myself. In Chesterton's time, as in every time, you know, radical movements existed to deconstruct common social institutions, such as the family and the defense of the family that was commonly heard at that time in Chesterton's words was the following. Amid the stress and fickleness of life, the family is peaceful, pleasant, and at one. But Chesterton says there is another defense of the family which is possible. This defense of the family is that it is not peaceful and not pleasant and not at one. He says, the man who lives in a small community lives in a much larger world. He knows much more of the fierce varieties and the uncompromising divergences of men. The reason is obvious. In a large community, we can choose our companions. In a small com community, our companions are chosen for us. There is nothing really narrow about the clan. The thing which is really narrow is the clique. The men of the clan live together because they all wear the same tartan or are all descended from the same sacred cow. But in their souls, by the divine luck of things, there will always be more colors than in any tartan. But the men of the clique live together because they have the same kind of soul, and their narrowness is a narrowness of spiritual coherence and contentment, like that which exists in hell. That point of, about contentment, I think, is really important because, you know, sometimes you get into these conversations with like-minded people where you're all just, you know, backslapping and engaging in this, like, you know, intellectually masturbatory exercise of self-congratulation. You know, like, oh, those people who aren't here to defend themselves are so dumb. Their ideas are so stupid, right? Like, we're so smart. You know, we all agree on this thing, right? And it's just, like, unproductive um, and intellectually slothful and ultimately damaging. Um, it's not always bad to agree or relish commonalities with other people, but there is something unpalatable about just like relishing your superiority against like straw man opponents who aren't there and using, you know, this clickishness to bring yourself closer to an increasingly narrow set of people. So he talks about how London has changed over time. And when London was small, there used to be these clubs, and the club was valued as a place where a man could be sociable. And now the club, as London's grown larger, is a place where a man can be unsociable. The more enlargement and elaboration uh, of civilization that goes on, the more the club ceases to be a place where a man can have a noisy argument. Its aim is to make a man comfortable, and to make a man comfortable is to make him the opposite of sociable. Sociability, like all good things, is full of discomforts, dangers, and renunciations. We, we've all you know, been at home thinking about going out and, and hanging out with people and you know, deciding, like, do I want the hassle? Do I want the stress? Do I want the, um, the natural apprehension of like, engaging with all these strangers? And the reality is like, that natural apprehension is, is the point. It's an opportunity for adventure. It's an opportunity for growth. And I say that as someone who's, you know, stayed home and not gone and engaged plenty of times. So this isn't, you know, like an essay that's supposed to preach to you. And I'm certainly not preaching to you. I think this has been uh, eye-opening for me personally as well. Um, I would say the first impact that I saw of this essay on my life is when I went to the dog groomer. And instead of just getting in and out, 
you know, I really like sat there and I really engaged with folks and talked to them and, you know, um, just tried to really like see them as, as full people beyond, beyond the limits of that interaction and just like be in that space with them, you know? And I thought it was a, a really positive experience and it's directly related to this book, you know, to help me appreciate the, um, the unchosen people in my life. Though I did choose that groomer, um, but you know, I didn't choose them because they're ideologically or, or uh, personally similar to me. I chose them for their skills. And I think that's another way in which meritocracy promotes this expansion of self. If you just look for the people who are the best at a certain thing, they're not narrowly similar across uh, superficial lines, right? Like if I just get all the best cellists in a room, they possess a, a variety of different characters, interests, backgrounds, as opposed to if I just find people of the same background as me or the same belief as me. It's interesting how that ties together. So here's a really interesting passage. It's, uh, it's about the whole effort of the typically modern person to escape from the street in which he lives. So he invents modern culture and goes to Florence. He invents imperialism and goes to Timbuktu. He goes to the fantastic borders of the earth, pretends to shoot tigers, rides on a camel, and in all of this, he's essentially fleeing from the street in which he was born. And of the flight, he is always ready with his own explanation. He says he's fleeing from his street because it's dull. He's lying. He's really fleeing from his street because it's a great deal too exciting. It's exciting because it's exacting, and it's exacting because it's alive. He can visit Venice because to him the Venetians are only Venetians. The people in his own street are men. He can stare at the Chinese because for him the Chinese are a passive thing to be stared at. If he stares at the old lady in the garden next door, she becomes active. He's forced to flee, in short, from the too stimulating society of, of his equals, of free men, perverse, personal, deliberately different from himself. The street in Brixton is too glowing and overpowering. He has to soothe and quiet himself among tigers and vultures, camels and crocodiles. These creatures are indeed very different from himself, but they do not put their shape or color or custom into a decisive intellectual competition with his own. They do not seek to destroy his principles and assert their own. The stranger monsters of the suburban street do seek to do this. The camel does not contort his features into a fine sneer because Mr. Robinson has not got a hump. Not sure what he means by that, but you get the point. The cultured gentleman at number five does exhibit a sneer because Mr. Robinson has not got a dado, which is a lower part of a wall to a room about waist height that's a different color from the covering of the upper part. The vulture will not roar with laughter because a man does not fly, but the major at number nine will roar with laughter because a man does not smoke. The complaint we commonly have to make of our neighbors and family for that matter is that they will not, as we express it, mind their own business. We do not really mean that they will not mind their own business. If our neighbors did not mind their own business, they would be asked abruptly for their rent and would cease to be our neighbors. What we really mean when we say that they cannot mind their own business is something much deeper. 
We do not dislike them because they have so little force and fire that they cannot be interested in themselves. We dislike them because they have so much force and fire that they can be interested in us as well. What we dread about our neighbors, in short, is not the narrowness of their horizon, but their superb tendency to broaden it. And all aversions to ordinary humanity have this general character. They're not aversions to its feebleness, as is pretended, but to its energy. The misanthropes pretend that they despise humanity for its weakness. As a matter of fact, they hate it for its strength. Now, this just rings so true to me, and um, you, you see this in Nietzsche, and actually Chesterton talks about it. So, you know, Nietzsche, who represents most prominently this pretentious claim of the fastidious, uh, has a description somewhere, a very powerful description in the purely literary sense of the disgust and disdain which consume him at the sight of common people with their common faces, their common voices, and their common minds. As I have said, this attitude is almost beautiful if we may regard it as pathetic. Nietzsche's aristocracy has about it all the sacredness that belongs to the weak. When he makes us feel that he cannot endure the innumerable faces, the incessant voices, the overpowering omnipresence which belongs to the mob, he'll have the sympathy of anyone who's ever been sick on a steamer or in a tired, uh, crowded omnibus, or in an airport terminal, or in a line trying to get food at lunch, various other places, DMV. Every man has had humanity in his eyes like a blinding fog, humanity in his nostrils like a suffocating smell. But when Nietzsche has the incredible lack of humor and lack of imagination to ask us to believe that it's aristocracy and it's an aristocracy of strong muscles or an aristocracy of strong wills, it's necessary to point out the truth. It's an aristocracy of weak nerves. I love that passage because it rings so true. You know, like we... Unflatteringly, I will say, you know, I think I've gone through a phase, you know, where I, I'm walking down the street with my headphones in and I feel this, this sense of uh, distance from other people and this sense of, of superiority, when in reality, it's, it's, it's an aristocracy of weak nerves. It's an unwillingness to engage. It's, it's pretending to... Um, you know, pretending to feel apart from people because you're better when in reality you're uh, putting yourself apart from people because of their fierce variety, you know? And I don't feel that way today. Um, generally speaking, I, I don't feel a sense of general superiority towards other people. And I appreciate, you know, the ability and the power of regular people to do incredible things. And I think, you know, everybody has their gifts and everybody has their, their competencies. So anyway, Chesterton again puts it best. We make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. He comes to us clad in all the careless terrors of nature. He is as strange as the stars, as reckless and indifferent as the rain. He is man, the most terrible of beasts. He this is what the uh, old religions and the old scriptural language described with sh so sharp a wisdom. Um,
He says here, you know, we may love African Americans because they're black or German socialists because they're pedantic, but we have to love our neighbor because he's there. A much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. He's the sample of humanity which is actually given us. Precisely because he may be anybody, he's everybody. He is a symbol because he's an accident. Doubtless men flee from small environments into lands that are very deadly, but this is natural enough, for they are not fleeing from death, they are fleeing from life. I mean, it's it. this book is just incredible. Um, especially for this day and age, you know, like this, this concept of your neighbor coming to you clad in all the careless terrors of nature, as strange as the stars and as reckless and indifferent as the rain. We're, we're divorced from this uncurated nature. That's, that's so healthy for us. And, and so, um, you know, mind expanding and so beneficial for our flourishing. And it's really hard to counteract this, but it's possible. Um, I think personally, one thing that I think helps is avoiding excessive amounts of processed political information. And what I mean by processed is sound bites uh, put out there by demagogues who are trying to get you excited because the kind of dogma and venom that builds up by engaging with that type of stuff for a long time has a has a motive force of its own um, and really pushes out the serendipitous elements of life and an appreciation for the fierce variety of mankind and womankind. At least that's what I find. I've been taking a break from uh, political podcasts this month and I've definitely found myself you know, just more even-handed, less wound up. Um, I think it's a balance because you, to a certain extent, it can be helpful to know what's going on. But if you find yourself, you know, just dumber, just being more ideological, filtering everything through a single lens more and more, or having a harder and harder time articulating the counterpoints to your beliefs... I think it's important to take a step back. And I think if you listen to the Dopamine Nation episode, four weeks is a good break to really help you reset and figure out what this thing, what the role of this stimulus is in your life. So I I really like this line where it's like, it's quite reasonable that the village genius should come up to conquer London if what he wants is to conquer London. But if he wants to conquer something fundamentally and symbolically hostile and also very strong, he'd much better remain where he is and have a row with the rector, which, you know, in British terms is have an argument with the priest, I guess. But I I, I love that line because it's like, you know, how much easier is it to to have it out with your family versus like, you know, go to the big city and hang out with people who are exactly like yourself and and argue against no one in circles, you know? Um, Yeah. It's a good thing for a man to live in a family in the same sense that it's a beautiful and delightful thing for a man to be snowed up in a street. 
they all force him to realize that life is not a thing from outside, but a thing from inside. Above all, they all insist upon the fact that life, if it be a truly stimulating and fascinating life, is a thing which, of its nature, exists in spite of ourselves. The men and women who, for good reasons and bad, revolt against the family are, for good reasons and bad, simply revolting against mankind. Aunt Elizabeth is unreasonable, like mankind. Papa is excitable, like mankind. Our youngest brother is mischievous, like mankind. Grandpa is stupid, like the world. He's old, like the world. And finally, this question of control and curation that I think is just more relevant now than ever and uh, will continue to be increasingly relevant. A man has control over many things in his life. He has control over enough things to be the hero of a novel. But if he had control over everything, there would be so much hero that there would be no novel. And the reason why the lives of the rich are at bottom so tame and uneventful is simply that they can choose the events. They're dull because they're omnipotent. They fail to feel adventures because they can make the adventures. The thing which keeps life romantic and full of fiery possibilities is the existence of these great plain limitations which force all of us to meet the things we do not like and do not expect. Hence, it is misunderstood by the moderns, who imagined that romance would exist more perfectly in a complete state of what they call liberty. They think that if a man makes a gesture, it would be a startling and romantic matter that the sun should fall from the sky. But the startling and romantic thing about the sun is that it does not fall from the sky. They're seeking under every shape and form a world where there are no limitations. That is, a world where there are no outlines. A world where there are no shapes. There is nothing baser than that infinity. They say they wish to be as strong as the universe, but really they wish the whole universe as weak as themselves. And that ends the essay. This was, uh, yeah, like I said, very, very impactful on me. Um, every time I go and engage with someone and I feel that, that discomfort of difference, um, and what I mean by that is, not, you know, unconscious bias. What I mean by that is <clears throat> I'm talking to someone and what they're saying doesn't resonate with me. Um, their tastes are different from mine. Their interests are different from mine. Their perspective, their values are different from mine. You know? Um, they're culturally different from me. And, and I feel that dissonance, that discomfort. Instead of shying away from it, you know, now I... I'm more impelled to like lean into it um, since it's an opportunity for adventure. It's an opportunity to meet the adventure of life and to be stronger and to engage in the fierce variety of mankind. And I think the family is a place where you learn to do that. You know, the, the essay starts with a, a great quote. Um, let me dig this up. 
The best way that a man could test his readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind would be to climb down a chimney into any house at random and get on as well as possible with the people inside. And that is essentially what each one of us did on the day that he was born. I don't really think I could put it better than that. Um, 